I was dealing with terminally ill patients. And I found that when I sat down and talked to them, they started answering a lot of those questions that I actually had for my financial experts. What does living a good life look like? What are the regrets you have when you get to the end of life if you don't live life right? Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Jordan Grummet, Jordan Doc G. What is up, my friend? Long time coming. How are you? I am excited to be here talking to you. I think we have a lot in common. I think we'll get along. I think we'll be friends, man. I'm so excited to dive into a lot of your philosophies. You have a lot of interesting perspectives that most people do not have, which makes for a fantastic podcast episode. So, Doc, I'll allow you to introduce yourself to the audience and then we'll dive in. So I'm Jordan Grummet. I decided I wanted to be a doctor when my father died when I was seven and he was a doctor. And I thought, hey, I'm going to fix the world by doing what he did because somehow I felt his death was because of something I did. I was purposeful and passionate about becoming a doctor and pretty much didn't let anything get into my way until I was practicing for years and found that I burned out and started really questioning whether this is what I wanted out of my life. At that time, I just I discovered financial independence, realized I had enough money. I didn't have to be a doctor anymore, which instead of making me excited, gave me a panic attack. And I took the next bunch of years trying to figure out what all that meant because I had no idea who I was supposed to be outside of being a doctor. It was the only identity or purpose I had ever had. I started a financial blog, eventually a financial podcast where I talked to all these experts who were telling me how to make a business, how to become financially independent, all these big, important topics, yet a lot of them couldn't tell me how to live a happier life. And at the same time, the only medical activities I kept doing, the thing in medicine that I would do, even if you weren't being paid for it, was to be a hospice doctor. So I was dealing with terminally ill patients. And I found that when I sat down and talked to them, they started answering a lot of those questions that I actually had for my financial experts. What does living a good life look like? What are the regrets you have when you get to the end of life if you don't live life right? All those great questions, it was like a melding of my financial and my physician life. I had never thought that they had anything to do with each other. So, of course, I had to write a book about it. I love it. And then the book is called Taking Stock for everyone that's listening. And we'll have the link in the show description for everyone that's interested. So, guys, we're about two minutes, 30 seconds in. Buy the book. Buy the book. We'll earn the book throughout the podcast interview. But go ahead and buy the book. Man, so many places that I want to begin, but I'll start with, I actually have a personal friend who also wrote a pretty good book in the medical professions, Tom Burns, Dr. Tom Burns. He wrote Why Doctors Don't Get Rich. And so let's diagnose the problem here, pun intended there, before we issue the solutions. Doctors, lawyers, corporate positions, VPs, managers, anything that has a VP slapped on the title. Let's really dive into what the problem is today that we're facing as a collective society of these especially highly trained and highly educated professionals that are high earning. Why are they unhappy, unfulfilled, and why the hell aren't they financially free? I think the problem is actually similar whether you're 
earning a high income or not. The problem is a lot of us look at money as a goal. It's something that we really want and we think it's the end all be all. So we go after that goal. But a lot of times we don't figure out what we want that money to do for us, right? Money is much more of a tool than a goal. It's a tool to live the life of purpose and to do the things we want to do. And because people don't want to do the hard work, which is to think about what purpose looks like in their life, instead they focus on money, which is very knowable, right? So making money might not be hard or making money might not be easy, but at least we know the steps, And so we get caught up in this whole idea of money is going to somehow solve our problems. When it doesn't, we do things like spend or oversave because we think those things then will make us feel better. But even if you're overspending and ending up with very little money, so you can make a lot of money and spend a lot of money, have very little left over, the spending doesn't eventually make you happy. There's something called the hedonic treadmill, this idea that the more we spend actually we have to spend more and more to keep feeling that good sense of happiness and warmth inside. And that eventually dissipates over time. It's habituation. We eventually become habituated to it. Or it, the same thing goes for savings. As we start to save and we save and we save it, it feels good in the beginning, but eventually that habituates too. So the idea is not how much money we can accumulate, but more importantly, how we can take that money and use it to build a better, more purposeful life. That's hard work. People don't want to do it, and so they develop all these bad habits, which pretty much mitigate the need to do that hard work, but they find themselves relatively unhappy. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a bullet hole, right? (laughs) You're not addressing the main problem, right? And so it's really easy to find short-term happiness in either making or spending money, but it's really hard for that to be the central reason you're happy long-term. I think it's very interesting that you specifically mentioned saving money as well, because I've been on both sides of the equation. I've been a super spender and I've been a super saver. And when I like hit my stuff and I was like, okay, I'm out of corporate financial independence, retire early, and I want to go travel, I thought that everyone would embrace me within the community, like the financial independence communities. They'd embrace me and be like, oh my goodness, congratulations. Instead, They're like, how dare you continue to work? That's not true. You're not saving money. You're spending too much money. No. And so I think it's really interesting that you specifically included that side of the coin because that's been my qualm with the FI community is it's both symptoms of the same disease where the person that overspends has the same problem in the inverse as the person that all of a sudden has $2 million invested in the S&P 500, but they can't bring themselves to go have a steak dinner with their wife for a date night. Can we address the psychology of this a little bit more before we dive in? Yeah. So what this is, the problem of treadmills, right? And they're just different treadmills, but they really describe the same thing, right? So if you are spending to make yourself happy, we call that the hedonic treadmill. Basically, we get that hit of dopamine or oxytocin or whatever those good feeling hormones are that make us feel good, but they dissipate so quickly because they become habituated. If savings is your thing in my book, I call that overdrive, but it's the same idea, right? It's savings that gives you that hit of dopamine, but unfortunately it dissipates over time. There are people out there like me who it's not savings or spending, it's achievement. And so we hop on the achievement treadmill and you'll see people like this who are achieving more and more. And every time they get to the end of achievement, instead of being happy, they feel a little empty and then have to set a higher bar to meet. And so I think the psychology of people is exactly that. We adapt and habituate 
closely. And this is why goals are a dangerous thing on some level. If you find that you tie your sense of purpose to a goal, you're going to find that you feel a little empty on the inside. Because I think what purpose really has to do more with is finding things you enjoy the process of doing regardless of the outcome, because that becomes infinite. You can do things you like, like podcasting, for instance, forever. And as long as you like doing them, they really fulfill a sense of purpose. On the other hand, if your goal of your podcast is to get a million downloads every month, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're not going to get there, and so you're going to fail and you're going to feel bad, or you're going to get there. But once you get there, it's a little bit of a hollow victory because you don't know what to do. (laughs) If the activity wasn't feeling purposeful, once you get to a million downloads, you're like, okay, now I got to get to 2 million. So you're back on the treadmill. Or the exact opposite, you start suffering from loss aversion. Oh my God, what if I go back down to 800,000 a month instead of a million? And you start freaking out about this possibility that you could lose what you gained. And both of those things are fairly unhealthy. And I think that's the psychology that we get messed up in, as opposed to, again, the harder work of saying, what activities do I enjoy doing regardless of the outcome? If you love podcasting, you're like probably me and you. There is nothing that feels as good as sitting behind the microphone, talking to someone and having a deep conversation. If nothing else comes of that episode, so So be be it. it. (laughs) But I know that this is a good use of my time because I'm enjoying this here and now. So I want to fill up with my life with more of those things and less treadmills. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we're going to be best friends. So, (laughs) So let's really drive this point home. Because I want to go down this rabbit hole with you from some personal examples here in a second. But I want to begin with you, especially in the medical profession. Can you give us an instance where you got everything that you ever wanted and realized and had one of those mountaintop moments? And then all of a sudden you're standing at the peak and then you just realize that you're at the bottom of the smallest mountain on the range and that it wasn't as fulfilling as you thought it would be. Can you give us a specific moment where you got everything you wanted? Oh, my God. So many times getting into medical school right? Which makes you ecstatic for a moment to you're like, oh my God, what if I don't make it there? And now I have to go take the classes and it gets harder. Through medical school, same thing. I want that residency program. I need to go to that one place that's going to set me apart from everyone else. And you get there and you're like, oh, but now I need to go to fellowship. or Oh, but after that, I need to get a job. Becoming a doctor in itself was one of those peaks that felt a little hollow and empty. You start realizing that the becoming is much more exciting than the arriving. And in fact, I hate to say this, but I have this funny thing that I sometimes tell my kids. I say, may you never make it fully to your dreams, only 95% there. And the reason why is there's something beautiful in the striving and the growing. And I think after setting up these huge goals for so long in our lives, once we get there, there's a lot of, so what now? And so these victories don't tend to be long lasting. God, this is such a good topic that isn't addressed enough, if at all. So we live in a world of high performance, high achievement, and everyone that listens to this podcast is a type A heat-seeking missile, just like they listen to yours. And I can remember back to each and every case of me getting everything I ever wanted, hitting my corporate goals, depression, leaving that job to go travel around the world for eight months, depression hitting millionaire status, depression. And I realized so I've, everything that you're saying is 100% true and it's validated across everyone. Talk to the people. There's interviews with people that have won Olympic medals. That's a great one. 
but they spend four years of their life at a time for this one race, this one activity, and then afterwards they win. Now what? So let's hit on this really quick. Let's get, before we get into the finances, I want to still twist the knife here on the psychology. So you've got a high performer that's in their corporate job, in the medical, in the law, whatever have you. And we already have addressed the financial, like the mindsets behind the financial. Let's address the mindset, like the mindsets and the psychology behind the identity. Because you mentioned that before where you said, look, I identify as a doctor. And this is an especially capital D doc. That's something Mm -hmm. that you really identify as because you put so much education into. I was, man, I am a high performance sales rep. This is, I'm used to the accolades. And then when you leave, that's no longer there. Walk us through that journey of leaving that job and your journey of self-discovery afterwards. So let's talk about me leaving or mostly leaving being a physician The problem was there's nothing wrong with identity and there's nothing wrong with holding tightly to a sense of identity and purpose. The problem is when you're holding on to that identity and purpose that no longer serve you. And so while I was a little kid, my dad had just died and I felt somehow guilty like I had done something wrong. That purpose and identity actually served me quite a bit. It brought me a lot of joy. It gave me goals in life. And then I became a doctor and I helped people. So I don't want to say that those were bad things. I guess what I want to say is I got to a point where it was no longer serving me. I realized that being a doctor probably wasn't filling me up. And most likely I became a doctor, not because it was my true identity and purpose, probably because of some of the trauma I went through as a child. I was lucky enough to realize at the same time I was financially independent. So I could walk away from that job, which solved the money problem, but unfortunately didn't solve that feeling of loss when it came to identity. Not only was I walking away from the only thing I had ever identified as, I was walking away also from being a high salary earner. But last but not least, I was walking away from the wisp of connection with my father who had died when I was seven. Wow. So that was very difficult. And I personally had no idea how to do that. So I did what was easiest. First of all, I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead of just quitting my job, I actually started journaling and writing and thinking about it. The next thing I did is I said, I have some leeway here. And I know there's some things I like about my job. So I started subtracting out everything I didn't like. I got rid of my practice. I stopped working nights. I stopped working weekends. I originally worked in nursing homes. I stopped doing that. What I was left with was hospice work. And I realized I would do that even if I wasn't being paid for it. So I'm like, ah, there is something that's purposeful to me that I can start rebuilding that identity in. So as opposed to trying to find something new, I looked at what I had and then tried to create a new identity around it. Hmm. When I did this, I cut my hours significantly. I did hospice work only. And that left a lot of space and time for me to start really looking at purpose and identity and saying, who am I if I'm not this doctor, this way I viewed myself my whole life? And I realized that there were these inklings, these whisperings that I had always had that I had ignored my whole life. Like when I was a kid, I also dreamed of being a writer, but I told myself, that's not something that you do. You become a doctor. After becoming a doctor, I wrote a blog about being a doctor and I would never have time to write. So I'd have to fit my blog post writing into like, lunch into lunch breaks, or maybe I do it late at night when my wife and my kids were sleeping. In fact, I had so little time, I almost never edited and it had so many grammatical errors. It was horrible, (laughs) but I had to write. And so these were these signs, this whispering is, oh, well, writing is important to you and you never had enough time to do it. You now have time because you've cleared out all that stuff that wasn't fulfilling your sense of identity and purpose. And so I could start generally and slowly building in things that were there that I knew about or that 
I had always been putting off. And that's the process. We can talk about how you specifically find a sense of purpose, and there's some real techniques you can use to do that. But ultimately, you have to look at where you are today. You have to take what's good there and try to, if you can, get rid of everything else. And then you have to start building a new identity around what feels purposeful and important around you. And it takes work. And it takes time, but that's the process. And like I said, there's some real prescribed steps you can take depending on where you are financially. Because it's very different if you're financially independent like I was versus let's say you're in your 20s and you have a job you don't like, but you don't have much money or savings. The process you take to start living a life more full of purpose and identity is going to be a little different than a guy in his 40s who has enough money to slow down at work. God, man, I've got an entire page full of notes. All right. Let me, <laughs> let, me, sure. let me think of how to, let me think of how to formulate these because I'm not used to having, man, you're just on, you're on the hot button that I think needs to be addressed more than any other topic in America right now. And I love it so much. So the first thing, I guess the most logical way to <clears throat> order these is the first is sunk cost fallacy. So it's what we're talking about when you've put so much into an identity that you're like, man, I've climbed up 80% to the mountaintop, which you have a story about a mountain climb that I want to get into shortly. That's extraordinarily important. So people stay tuned for that. But imagine you make it to the mountaintop and you're 80% of the way there. You can see the peak. And then you come to the realization that the only way to get to the peak is to go all the way back down to the summit, the base and start all over again up a new path. So most people don't do that, right? Because you're, And that's like with marriage sometimes. That's with your career. And that's that identity that you had. So I really enjoy how you made it. You took it from what we call binary thinking to where it was doctor, not doctor. I'm this or I'm that. I'm black or I'm white. I'm A or I'm B. And you almost did an adjacent identity. So you took it from being binary to a spectrum. And I haven't heard it described like that before, but that was extraordinarily interesting because you took the parts that you loved about what your current career capital had led up to. And then you said, how do I do more of that and reduce the parts that I hate? And then that's what led you to hospice. And I think that's really interesting because I really enjoyed sales. And so now it's like I do sales in my own thing. And so can you hit a little bit more about almost the adjacent jump? It's like moving diagonally. So I love that you brought up the sunk cost fallacy because it is a fallacy. The problem is identity is not a destination. It's a state of being. <clears throat> yes. So you don't get to be a certain identity. You are who you are. The question is, are your daily activities and your sense of purpose going to reflect that identity or not? I always had the identity of being a writer, a creator, even a podcaster, someone who had these deep, intense conversations. That was me from as little as I can remember. I just wasn't living a life consistent with that identity. And that was the disconnect. So you don't lose anything by deciding that your purpose that you're living out in your life doesn't match your identity anymore. Your identity is your identity. What happens is you start decreasing the number of activities every day you're spending doing things that are not identity consistent and hopefully building in new activities that are identity consistent. And the way you do this is by recognizing what purpose is in your life. Purpose is the actions. Identity is the state of being. I always was the same person. It's just my purpose of being a doctor 
I was doing these daily actions, which were no longer filling me up and no longer reflecting the identity was there. So I had to change my actions. And the way to do that was to reorient my purpose from going to the clinic and treating people and helping people in that way to creating conversations and writing and becoming a communicator. That purpose I found really served the identity that was truly there better. And so I could reorient my activities. And ultimately what that happened is I just felt happier because all of a sudden there wasn't this disconnection in my daily activities connected to who I thought I was as a person. And that was the magic. And so what I tell people who are like me, who, as you would have described, are 80% of the mountaintop and realize that maybe they're climbing the wrong mountain. I wouldn't look at it as loss at all. I just say, look, it's time to transition to a different mountain. Or maybe <laughs> you've been hanging out on one mountain for a long time, but yet trying to climb up another one and you have to go back to the mountain you're on. I really like how you talked about the multiple steps to being able to get quiet enough. Because when you switch to hospice, that's when you got quiet. And the answers that we're looking for that are most important in our life come with stillness not from stimulation. And so I think that's a really important point to hit because the framework that we preach here is going from passive income to passionate income, which is like my whole moniker, and then to massive impact. So it's like, essentially at its core, let's get everyone rich so that they can realize that was never the answer, (laughs) just so that they can get enough up out of the weeds of, let me make sure the bills are paid, the lights are on, my kids are fed, there's a roof over our heads. And I've got money in the bank. And then let's get quiet and figure out what do I actually enjoy doing? What the hell do I like? What is fun for me? And then building a business. You're getting lit up here. I want to let you speak on this. Only the reason why is what if we did it the other way around? What if we got quiet first and then built our financial framework around it? I didn't do that, but it's certainly what I advocate in the book. If you are self-aware enough, which I was not in my 20s, If you are self-aware enough, actually, you probably want to start with getting quiet, figure out what purpose looks like in your life, and then you can build a financial framework around that, which does not preclude passive income or grinding it out, even doing a job you don't like in a purposeful way. It just means now I am utterly clear about why I'm doing these financial activities and how they're going to support the overall more important goal, which is to live that life of purpose and identity and connections, those kind of things that are important to me. So it's a really hard transition to make. And I, like you said, I had to get out of the financial weeds in order to see the big picture. I would love if we could teach young people to look at the big picture and get quiet first and then start building their financial framework around it. I think that would be really amazing. Doc, are you prescribing vision to the audience right now? (laughs) Is that possible? Are you saying that it's really important to have a strong, articulated vision for your future before you begin investing? And I'm not Pollyanna about this. Like, I realize you don't have to love your job necessarily. You don't have to love the thing that makes you money. But I think ultimately we have to at least understand why we're doing that. And if you just go and look at the general population, especially high income earners, When you really drill down on why are they doing what they're doing, the only thing they can answer is because it makes me money. And I think if that's you, then you've got to take a step back and look at your life and have a little bit of better answer. You can still do the same things, but it has to be more, I'm making money so that I can 
blank space. Like, where's the purpose and identity? What is it really getting you? Don't listen to me, guys. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to me across 400 <laughs> podcast episodes. Listen to Jordan. Don't listen to me. Hey, I've you, done you four, I've done 450 yeah. podcast episodes too. So hey, we're about even. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> and you guys need to check out. By the way, he does earn and invest. You guys need to check out the podcast. You guys will love the show. How many times have I talked about vision? How many times have we had Cameron Harold on here? How many times have we talked about vivid vision, guys? It is the most important part of the entire journey. And man, there's so many different things. I'm going to I'm gonna table some of these so we can get into the actual hospice because I think that this is very interesting. But at the end, I really want to hit on like achievement, especially capital A achievement, because the person that we're talking to and the person that we're talking about is both of us, right? So we've mentioned multiple times where you get to the mountaintop and you get everything you've ever wanted. And then it's like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And so when it comes to fallacy, one of the greatest fallacies is that will bring fulfillment. But the reality is that if you retire without this vision, let's say that you don't do the vision, you don't do the work that Jordan's prescribing, and you just have enough money to where you can quit your job and go travel like you think you want to. Cool. So you've been a winner your entire corporate career. You've won and won and won. And now suddenly you find yourself not winning anymore. So you may be on that beach, but now you have no purpose. Now you're not setting goals. And so I want to talk about that 95% that you tell your kids. I hope that you get 95% to your goals. So we talked about the wrong way to do goals. What's the right way to do goals? And then we'll pivot into your findings with the hospice patients. Ultimately, in some sense, goals are the wrong way, actually. I think most happiness comes from not an achievement of goals, but into doing the process that lights you up. And that's why I think I tell my kids, may you get 95% of the way, but not all the way there. Because I believe when you're in the midst of the process of doing something that you think is important and you're enjoying the little incremental gain and becoming what you want to become, I actually think that's more important and feels better to people than that big audacious goal. And just for that reason, unfortunately, when you hit that big audacious goal, you have nowhere to grow or gain or move to except by creating another big audacious goal. So ultimately, I'm a big fan of process instead of product. I think we need to spend more of our time not worrying about the goal or outcome and spend a lot more time worrying about how does it feel doing the activity at the time you're doing it? And is it fulfilling that sense of purpose? Are you doing something that's important or something that lights you up or something that maybe you were like created to do? And if you haven't found those things, it's time to start looking at them. Again, I don't want to be Pollyanna. It doesn't mean we can't have goals, and especially financial goals. While you're pursuing all these other things, you can also hit some financial goals, et cetera. But I suggest that those goals don't become your purpose. I think those are purpose adjacent. I think they're used to support your purpose. So my goal is to make $10,000 a month passive income. If that's your only goal and you have no purpose behind it, you're going to get there and you're going to feel empty and either push it up higher or get worried that you're going to lose it. But let's say my goal, my passion is I loved Cub Scouts as a kid and I'm now a Cub Scout leader and I want to spend as much as I, time as I can building the Cub Scout organization and mentoring young kids. So now my goal is to make $10,000 a month passive income because that allows me the time freedom and emotional preparedness and intellectual freedom to go be the best 
Boy Scout leader, contributor, etc., that I can be. And the money is the tool that supports that purpose. So I think we should set goals for things that support purpose as opposed to hitting that goal being our purpose. Yeah. Simon Sinek, start with why. I absolutely love that. And I 100% agree. I 1000% agree. And so the best answer that I've come up with for my own personal happiness and for the happiness of others is to find it Instead of enjoying the mountaintop moments, let's learn to enjoy the climb. Let's enjoy climbing the mountain. And then that's where the win is. Like the climb is the destination. Phil Knight, who founded Nike, has a fantastic quote where he goes, like, the there is no finish line in running. The running is the finish line. Yeah. yeah. And what if that was always the answer from the beginning? Yeah. If you in my book Taking Stock. I build a framework for what purpose is, and I actually call it the climb. So if you think about it, at least in my opinion, happiness is literally two things. It's meaning and purpose. Meaning is how we think about our past. So if you learn to tell yourself magical stories about your past, where you were the hero, and even through the biggest and worst traumas, you came out ahead and learned from it, that starts creating happiness. But that's your past. That's meaning, interpreting your past. Then you add that to purpose. Purpose is your present and your future. It's what you do today that fills you up and that reasserts your sense of identity. Purpose, in my mind, instead of being goal-oriented, which is eminently failable and often doesn't make us happy, as we were talking about, should be process-oriented. And the way we build purpose into our life is this process that I call the climb. We build multiple climbs into our life, which are purposeful activities that fill our time up, right? Because we only have a set amount of time. But these purposeful activities that we fill our time up, that's happiness. That's winning the game. You win the game when you have more or as much time filled with these climbs as possible. I love that. There's two quotes that come to mind for both of those. So the first quote that I have is from Naval Ravikant. He's got my favorite definition of happiness up to this point. I love your definition is right up there. But his definition was happiness is peace in motion. And peace is happiness at rest. And I was just like, Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I have to think about that. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh, like, we're talking about like, presence, right? My goodness. I love all of that. And when it comes to the climb and everything that you're saying is absolutely wonderful. So let's dive in to your work with these hospice patients. Because you and I were just talking, I just posted a a video about the top five regrets of the dying that is going viral and I almost got sued. Oops. And so let's talk about where you're getting this perspective. Because obviously, you have to have a certain level of perspective to be able to form these opinions that you have. So walk us through some of your key takeaways. And we talk about them in the book as well. Once again, that's taking stock. Let's talk about these hospice patients and maybe share the story of Everest as well. Bronnie Ware wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And she is a palliative care nurse who basically interviewed hospice and palliative care patients and came up with these five main regrets. And in my book, I talk about those, but I also often use the term investments. Like, what are the investments that help us not have regret? And one of the big problems is we tend to not invest enough time or energy 
into those things that were most important to us. So we often regret that we never had the energy, courage, or time to do those things that were deeply meaningful to us. And the reason why, first and foremost, and that's different for everybody, right? Because we're all very different individuals and what's important to us is different depending on who you are. And a good reason why is that it's difficult and scary and reminds us that life is finite, right? So when we focus on things like making money or career, all those kind of things, it lets us not spend time thinking about the deeper, more difficult things. Like how do I live a life full of purpose, identity, and connections? That's a difficult, deeper thing to think about. It reminds us that time is short. And if we don't start working on this now, we may never get there. And so instead we put it off and focus on all of these other things. And so I think it comes down to, and what I see in the dying is that people often regret that they didn't invest in their lives more. And so I see lots of positives and negatives surrounding this idea. I see people who on their deathbed said, man, I really wanted to write a book, but I never had the courage. So I never tried and they never put themselves out there and time got away from them. And all of a sudden it was too late. I see the exact opposite too. I see people who didn't put things off and on their deathbed, they're very thankful that they did that. And so an example, as we were talking about, is I had a patient named Ernesto, who, when he was in his 20s, did something that no one could quite believe. He was climbing up the corporate ladder, doing a fantastic job, and decided to take a full year off to train and then go climb Mount Everest. Now, people told him he was crazy. They're like, you know what? Wait till your 30s or 40s after your career is more established, after you've made more money. But Ernesto was certain that he wanted to do it. And he figured, if I don't do it now, then when am I going to do it? So he went and took the year off, trained for half a year, then eventually went to Everest, started the climb. They made it about halfway. The weather changed. They had to come back down. That was in his 20s. He eventually went back to work, was fairly successful. And I met him in his early 40s when he was dying of leukemia. Now, imagine if he hadn't done this deeply important thing for him this climbing of the Mount Everest, what if he had put it off? What if he had said, oh, these people are all right. I could do it in my 40s or 50s when I'm more established. Obviously, he would have never done it. The only thing he ever wanted to talk about with his hospice nurses and even me, the hospice doctors, he wanted to recall what it felt like to climb on the mountain, the wind, the coolness, the every step having to work for it and yet feeling just such relief as he got to every new peak that to him was living. And when he was dying, those were the memories that he invested in that paid dividends. Those were the memories that comforted him and that he wanted to tell people before he left this world. And interestingly enough, he never succeeded. He didn't make it all the way up to Everest. He didn't summit it. But to him, that wasn't nearly as important as the fact that he had tried and even in this case failed something that was deeply important to him. And I see this over and over again. People don't do things that they deeply want to do because they're afraid they're going to fail. But on your deathbed, you'll be much more proud of the fact you gave it your all, that you were in the arena, that you were fighting the good fight, than if you were on the sidelines, never attempting it. And so for him, Ernesto didn't care that he didn't succeed. It still was one of those things that gave him meaning even on his deathbed. Do you find, it sounds like this is going to be validated, but do you find that people on their deathbed have more regrets of omission as opposed to regrets of things that they did do that they wish they, they, they hadn't? 
So mostly, right? Because if you don't do something, you never get the chance again. If you make a mistake, if you hurt someone or you do something wrong, a lot of times you can make up for that, right? You can go back and talk to that person and apologize. And so again, it becomes an error not that I broke that relationship. What you really feel bad about is the omission of not going back and then fixing it, right? Yes, there's some things. God, I wish I had never drank alcohol that day, got into that accident and killed someone, right? So there's some of that. But a lot of it actually is that you didn't do something, not that you did something you regret. And that gets back to why we don't throw ourselves out there more and try, even if we're going to fail. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because the reason that we don't do that is because we're afraid. I don't even think my personal opinion, and I'd like to hear you riff on this. My personal opinion is I don't even think people are necessarily afraid of failure. I think that they're just afraid of the appearance of failure. And I'm afraid of the uncertainty because, and my validation to this mentally is if you knew you were 47 failed dates away from meeting your wife or your husband, you would be fine with failing 47 times. And if you were, if you knew that you were seven failed businesses away from the one that made you a hundred million dollars and fulfilled your life's purpose, you would gladly fail those businesses. So it was never really the failure. It was like what people would think of you or talk about you or say about you in the in the midst of the failure. And it's also the uncertainty of how long do I have to deal with this pain before I get reward? I'm curious to hear you riff on that. Funny enough, I'm going to do something annoying, which is answer your question, but not really answer your question. Hell Here's yeah. the problem. Sounds like a doctor. Exactly. Here's the problem <laughs> with that. And it gets back to something that we were talking about with purpose. If you have something that's deep and meaningful to you and your biggest worry is that you're going to fail to meet a goal, then you've already screwed it up. Mm -hmm. Because as we were talking about, purpose is not about whether you reach the goal or not. It's about feeling fulfilled within the process of doing it. And so when you get into the arena, as we talked about with the well-known Roosevelt speech, it's being in the arena that actually... Matters. is what invigorates us, what gives our life meaning and purpose. It's not whether we slay the opponent or the beast or whatever we're fighting. It's that we are pushing ourselves and learning and growing and actually doing the thing, not getting to the goal. And so I'm not sure, because I'm not sure if it's the fear of how society will look at us or whether we're actually afraid of failing the goal. But either way, I think our fears are misplaced because it's not, again, we're getting much more goal-oriented than we should be when we should really be looking at the process or purpose behind what we're doing. Yeah, I think that once you enter, I think that's actually an interesting transition point between going from like the employee to entrepreneur, like the corporate world to the business world. Because I feel like the business world, we fail so much that it's almost like embraced. So that is being in the arena. You're like, okay, cool. Like you almost went bankrupt twice. Oh my God. I remember when that happened to me. <laughs> and then you're just like, ah, that's, I, I relate with you for having been in the arena myself. Whereas outside of that business and entrepreneurship world, it's, oh my God, but what if you fail? Why should you buy that house? Why should you invest in that? Oh, what if the tenants don't pay? What if it burns down? And as people telling you that out of love, you know, so it's not necessarily malicious. It's interesting. So it's at the end of the day, it's like 
uh, the point of the goal isn't to accomplish the goal itself, but to become the person that is capable of accomplishing the goal. I think it was Hal Elrod yes. that said that. And yes. I love that you say that. So I want to hit on, I want to circle back now. I had this circled, ironically, on my sheet here. So you said you had a multiple step process to building this new identity. And I wanted to preface it with the hospice story and some of your takeaways there. You said you have a framework for this. Let's go through this framework as much as you're willing to share to go into how to build this new identity and this new relationship with failure and this new relationship with goal setting and purpose. So I'd almost say, and I hate to, this is not a correction, but I think I look at it slightly differently, right? So you don't build a new identity. The identity is there. You are who you are. So you what, you do, what you do is you build the purpose that supports that identity. So the real question is not how do you build a new identity? It's how you create a light of a life of purpose that supports the identity that fits you best or who you are, right? Because you are who you are, regardless if you try to mask who you are by doing activities that don't support it, you are who you are. So to me, the question becomes, how do I, and I'm not going to say find because you don't really find purpose. How do I create purpose in my life that supports my true identity? And so I think there's some real clear and obvious steps you can take to start doing that. And I talk about them in my book, Taking Stock, and believe it or not, I'm in the middle of writing another book, which goes much more granular on this. But so a few exercises you can do. One is we talk about in my book, the life review, this idea of we have hospice patients who are terminally ill and we sit down with them and we go through with them a series of structured questions that ask them about their life. What was important to you? What were your most magical moments? What were your worst moments? Who were the people that you were most connected to? What were your accomplishments you were most happy with? What did you fail at? What did you succeed at? What do you hope happens in the next few weeks as you, you know, approach death? So all of that as a package becomes a life review. It's a good way for people to review their lives and hopefully come to some peace with the dying process and what they didn't accomplish. But I've always said, if you really want to start thinking about purpose, why aren't we taking this lesson from the dying and start doing our own life review now when we're much younger? And the quick, simple one sentence life review is if you were told that you were going to die, what would you regret never putting the energy, courage or time into doing that was important to you? So I think meditating on that, just if I was going to die, what would I regret that I didn't invest more of myself into is a good way to start thinking about what are those things that are deeply meaningful to me that I always put off because life got in the way, right? When you find out you're going to die, life no longer gets in the way. So whether that's society or your job or making money or whatever it was that was getting in the way, that question serves to try to remove all of those outside influences so you can figure out what's more on the inside. So that's step one is doing the life review or at least asking yourself that one question. I think the next thing we have to do is really look back at our childhood. Children, especially young children, find joy in things that adults don't. In fact, most of the time a kid finds joy in things that don't necessarily aren't goal oriented, don't necessarily have anything to do with money or their place in society or what have you. Most kids have these outgrown, audacious, funny things they like. And when they're really little, your parents support you. My example is when I was three or four years old, I told my mom I wanted to build a swimming pool in our backyard. And her and I went to the backyard and spent the afternoon giggling, cleaning out the, the leaves and raking and all stuff. She knew I wasn't going to actually do this, but she didn't rain on my parade. She's oh, let's have, go have fun, do that <laughs> no. for the day. If I had been 15 and gone to my mom and said, hey, I'm going to go build a pool in the backyard, she would have given me all the reasons why we couldn't do that, the building permits, the liability, blah, 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 blah. 
So something happens where as kids, we have these wonderful ideas of what makes us happy. And they usually get squashed over time by the adults in our life, by society, by our goals of making money or what we think we should or shouldn't do for a living. So step two, if step one is the life review, step two is going back to childhood and what lit you up as a child. Believe it or not, that may hold the kernels of what look, purpose looks like in your life today. Step three, if you hate your job or hate the life you're living and you started subtracting or getting everything you didn't like, are there some things that still remain? And so even in the most onerous jobs, some people say, yeah, but I like the five minutes a day I do this. That could also become the anchor of what purpose looks like in your life. So find the anchoring moments, even in the things you don't like. It's a good way to start thinking about what purpose looks like in your life. After that, there are a bunch of other ways, right? Asking friends and family. Have you ever asked a family member, when have you seen me most lit up and myself? What was I doing? Now, Keep this in perspective. Sometimes when you ask family member and friends, they bring all their stuff to the conversation instead of your stuff. So be aware of the fact that they may suggest things that don't actually fit you. But someone who really loves you and has known you for decades could probably look at you and say, you know what? The happiest you've ever been is when you were doing X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Those things might be important. And then last but not least, if none of that is working, it's the spaghetti method. You throw a bunch of things up the wall and see at the wall and see what sticks. In other words, you say yes to a bunch of new people and new opportunities and you try new things or things that scare you. And the minute you find ones that start feeling purposeful or good or joyful, you glom on them and start building from that and trying other things like those things until you can find what seems to suit you. So I think those are four or five kind of good ways of doing some really basic exercises to say, what does purpose look like in my life today? Ultimately, that purpose has to reflect your identity. So it's almost asking the same question. Your identity asks, I am, and you have to fill in the blank. What am I deep down inside? But when you're really talking about purpose, you're talking about what are those activities that will support my identity? What are those activities that bring me joy because of who I am? And last but not least, the goal of all this, winning is not knowing your sense of identity. Winning is not having a sense of purpose. Winning is the, is the communities and connections you make through your identity and purpose. So the most important thing actually is the lives you connect with and the people you touch in life. But the funny thing is you don't even have to think about that. Because if you start working on identity and purpose, the community and connections naturally will follow. Woo. I think one of those will do it, man. I think I think that'll probably knock it out the park for people listening, huh? It's like you put some know, that, thought that was into about, it. It's like that, you put that, some thought into it. It's like you wrote a book on it. <laughs> that was a mouthful, I know. No, that was amazing. <laughs> I was already thinking about, I'm like, okay, I can make this into 40 different videos that'll make a million views. I'm like, all right, we're going to get this message out there. I love, And this is, look, this is a personal finance podcast. We talk about business. We talk about entrepreneurship. I got Ali Webb is the billionaire founder of Drybar coming on tomorrow. And I love talking about all that stuff stuff but a capital l love this because this is what it's all about everything else is just like various plane rides train rides and car rides to get to the destination and it's everyone's so obsessed with the how and we talk a lot about how on the show but no one talks about where or who and those are like the correct questions to ask so it's like what you're talking about directly is the exact same thing that I believe, which is money is cool. So that's like the first level of freedom. Then it goes to some money and then it's time. And everyone says time is the ultimate currency, which I used to agree with. But then I realized that 
it, I had all the time in the world where I could go do anything. And I'm like, okay, I'm out. I can go do stuff. But then all my friends were still working. Now it's just like, yeah. so time isn't it. Cause I can do anything I want. It's relationships. Yeah. yeah. Relationships I, are the ultimate currency. They always have been. Always will be. And I, th- I think when you find people who come on your podcast to talk about why the ones who are most connected and happy and into what they're doing will start telling you the why and the how and, and the, the where. Yeah. They will just do it automatically because to them, it's just so deeply ingrained, intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you said about fine. It's the communities that you build along the way. And I was really struggling. So I'm writing my book and I was struggling to find advice because everyone I'm sure asks you the same questions that they ask me where it's, how do I find coaches? How do I find mentors? How do I find these new friends? You're the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. How the hell do I find new people? And yeah, I'll let you, before I, I give mine, I, I want to let you riff on it because you're smart. No, I just, again, how do I find the right people in the communities? The problem is you're looking for the right people in the communities instead of identifying who you are as a person and what's purposeful to you. If you start doing those, you will naturally attract, connect to the right people. It's like everyone spends so much time figuring out who the right people are, and they don't take time to be like, okay, who am I as the right person that mm-hmm. will magnetically attract these people? And so the advice that I finally, because I was grappling on this for months, and I finally came up with it, and that's where the arena quote came. And I was just like, that's the answer. Like, it's always been the answer. The way that you attract the peers and the partners and the people that you're looking for is to simply get in the arena and document it. And do the thing. And like, showcase so, it and be like, hey guys, but you have to be you have to showcase it though. Because a lot of yeah, people are quietly yeah. in the arena and they don't talk about it. And so they don't no one knows. <laughs> over and over I, again. I, I'll tell you. So I spent the first 30, 40 years of my life as a doctor, and I was very good at it, but I didn't have a lot of doctor friends. I didn't like hanging out at doctor places, and I didn't like telling people I was a doctor in social situations. And so I didn't have any community and I didn't have any connections. When I moved to personal finance and started doing what I like doing, which is writing and podcasting and all those kind of things, I made such deeper connections and met so many more interesting people that got me into more and more creation. I've always wanted to write a book. I never did it as a doctor. I became a podcaster and a blogger, and I met all these people who had successful books because I was doing the thing. And then they, because they enjoyed watching me do the thing and being part of what I was creating, were like, oh, yeah, this is my agent. Why don't you give them, shoot them an email and, and let's see what they think about, or this is my publisher, or this is my coach who helped me write the first five chapters of my book. And all of a sudden, you find that you know, if you build it, they will come. The Field of Dreams quote. Most of us are trying to get to the destination without building who we are and what's important to us. And what I found is the more I built that sense of self and purpose into my life, the more the like-minded people were attracted to me who could help me further the things that I thought were important. And I want to punctuate that for people listening right now. So you guys may be hearing that. And if you've made it to the end of the episode here, it's like you, you've, you're you with us. Like we, you're with us. <laughs> and you understand and, every, and you're with everything that we're talking about. But some of you still may say, okay, but 
I don't quite know what I'm doing yet. And until I know what I'm doing, I don't want to document, right? So it's like, I don't quite yet know how to swing the sword in the arena. And until I'm really good at sword fighting, then I'll start posting about that. So that maybe look like maybe once you get your first hundred units, maybe once you f- launch your first business and you're at a hundred thousand, all these vanity metrics. But the reality of the situation is, and I'll let Jordan echo this. People don't care to see the wins. They actually enjoy seeing the struggles. So it's like posting, oh my God, basement flooded again. <laughs> Here's what just happened. And that, those are the posts that everyone, when I make a podcast and I'm like, oh, here's how I messed up in my business. Everyone's, oh my God, that was, that was way better than hearing how you're winning. Have you had the same experience? Because yeah, every single I, time it's sharing the wins and the losses. I think I was trying to find a way, as you were saying this, I was trying to find a way to put this in words that make sense. So let me see if this works. Vulnerability in the quiet is just emotional turmoil. Vulnerability amongst people who you care about, who are invested in who you are, becomes growth. And so I think the issue is if you do this all on your own, you may not grow from it as much. In fact, it just might be turmoil. Whereas on some level, and that doesn't mean that the audience has to be broad in the whole world, but if you live out a little bit of your vulnerability in a, with a warm audience, right? People who are a little bit invested in you, that's when you really grow. Catharsis almost. I, you know what? I don't know what it is. There's something about the courage of fighting your demons, maybe the courage of being in the arena when other people are on the stands or in the stands that brings out the best in us. And so I think there's such thing as vulnerability porn, right? So people overdo it yeah, and they yeah, do yeah, it yeah. in fake and unintentional ways. But what I've generally found is if you are intentional in your vulnerability, you will almost always grow. And there just there is no vulnerability in the absence of other people. Because ultimately also what the goal of vulnerability is not to just grow, but to connect. And so you're not going to connect with other people if you're vulnerable in silence, the only way to connect to other people, to grow, to build community, to make connections is you have to be vulnerable around the people who are open to it. Yeah. And vulnerable in a safe space, like authentically vulnerable. <clears throat> and it's like the first thing I thought of was like, I was like, okay, let's not like, let's not be the person that's on TikTok filming a 20, 20 angle montage of you crying after a breakup. That's a little weird. <laughs> that's not necessarily authentically vulnerable. You're like literally editing your tears and uh, posting it publicly. That was those are weird. I don't understand why people do that. But I think that's a really great point where it's like you don't it's almost a negative if you're doing it by yourself and just bottling it up, but sharing it with the right people with the right community because I remember thinking back to my first property if I had shared and I think I tried to share some of the struggles I was going through with my family and with my immediate friends because that's all I had at the time. And then they were like they just made it worse, so much worse. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we told you. Like, yeah, that's, not gonna that's, pay. What, that's what you get for yeah, trying to move yeah, ahead in the world. You. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but then as soon as I found like that one group, that one squad of people that were like, it's because I think at its core, to close this out, it's because you realize that you're not alone and you've never mm-hmm. been alone. And the people have always been there. And there's no problem that you're having in your relationship, in your life, in your business that thousands if not millions of other people haven't had and it's like you almost need to go i remember i just recently had my first heartbreak like full heartbreak 
like over a year ago and in my life, in my adult life at 27 years old, now I'm 28. And it was like, I never got that. And I never understood other people like going through that or even like the country songs at all went through it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, other people went through this. This is a human experience. So the same thing with you guys, no matter what you're going through, there's other people that are also going through that and make it your mission to find those people and you're unstoppable. Anything that you'd add in closing? Yeah, I think it's about being enough. I mm. think the issue is most people don't realize that there already are they already are enough already, regardless of what happens in the future. Love that. And so when you are willing to be open and vulnerable, what you're really saying is, I'm okay. I'm enough expressing this hurtful thing in front of other people won't lessen who I am. But you're also saying, but I just need a little help. Oh, I think that's what it comes down to. And so people who are confident enough to feel that they are enough can then use vulnerability for what it really is, which is connection and growth, which comes back to the beginning of the whole conversation. Jordan, where can people find you? Where can people buy the book? Best way is to go to jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. There you can find the three ways I create content. There was a medical blog that I wrote from 2004 to 2018 called In My Humble Opinion. You get the link there, as well as my financial blog, diversify.com, as well as what I spend most of my time doing, which is the Earn and Invest podcast. There are also links to the book, Taking Stock. You can find it anywhere books are sold, especially online. So either go to jordangrummet.com or just Amazon. Beautiful. Guys, buy the book, follow Jordan, listen to the podcast. Doc, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been a blast, man. Thanks for having me. With that, that's been Jordan O'Brien with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.